Hello and welcome to the inaugural Peter Melchett Memorial Lecture. I'm Joanna Lewis. I'm the Policy and Strategy Director for the Soil Association uh, and the Chair of the Food Ethics Council. Uh, just a bit of housekeeping. First, we are recording the lectures, so if you haven't already, please put your phones on silent. Thank you very much. So the title of the inaugural Peter Melchett Memorial Lecture is 10 Years to a Farming Future that Works for Climate, Nature and Health? Now, we can't really afford that question mark. Farming and land use are in the spotlight on climate change as never before. There are calls for further intensification of food production to free up land for bioenergy and afforestation. But what would this mean for nature? And is this the only pathway to net zero? In the same week that the Climate Change Committee launched their groundbreaking net zero report in the summer, the UN sister panel of the IPCC, the IPBES panel, uh, published its devastating global assessment of biodiversity and called on governments worldwide to wake up to the biodiversity crash uh, and the soil degradation crisis and to give those equal priority with climate change in farming and land use policy. Scientists have pointed to intensive farming and pesticides as the primary drivers for a global insect crash that threatens to erode the ecological foundations of farming and of life itself. In the UK, the RSA Commission for the Future of Food, Farming and the Countryside has called for a 10-year transition to agroecology. But how feasible is that transformation? What would it mean for climate change and our ability to feed a growing population a healthy diet? This is the first in what will be a series of annual lectures to honour the memory of the wonderful Peter Melchett, who many of you here knew and loved so well, and who was the policy director at the Soil Association for 17 inspiring years. The lectures will aim to challenge orthodoxies and stimulate fresh thinking on the causes uh, that Peter cared about so passionately. We are delighted to have with us Peter's partner, Cass, along with for so many family members, friends, and also former colleagues of Peter's at Greenpeace. Peter famously was not afraid of direct action. I can only imagine that he may have been out there right now with the Extinction Rebellion protesters, uh, at least the Extinction Rebellion farmers, uh, with their message that this is an ecological crisis, not just a climate crisis, and that farming is at the heart of the solution. But, as Chris Rose uh, put in his wonderful obituary in The Garden, Guardian, Peter passionately believed in combining direct action with reasoned scientific argument. So while his heart may have been out with the Extinction Rebellion protesters, his head, I believe, would have been with the French Policy Research Institute, IDRI, and the detailed scientific modelling that they have done to show how farming and land use might transition to an agroecology system that works for climate, for nature and for health. You'll have noticed that the lecture tonight is in two parts. We have two lecturers. 
Was this just hopeless indecision on our part? Well, no, it was quite deliberate. Tonight, you have a double act that is designed, firstly, to remind us of the urgency of the nature crisis and what that means for farming. And secondly, crucially, to inspire us with the hope that a farming future that works for climate, for nature and for health is feasible. Without further ado, let me introduce Professor Dave Goulson, uh, Professor of Biology at Sussex University. I hope he'll forgive me for calling him the bee man. Dave has arguably done more than anyone else to challenge the complacency around neonicotinoid pesticides and bees. He is the author of the fabulous, award-winning A Sting in the Tail uh, and its many fabulous sequels. Uh, and he has published, I understand, more than 200 scientific articles on ecology and bees. So I can think of no one better placed uh, than Dave to induct us into the causes and consequences of the global insect crash. Dave. Thank you. It's, it's an absolute honour to give the first half of the, the inaugural Peter Melchett Memorial Lecture. Um, just, don't know whether I need... It's fine. Um, I, I was going to say... I mean, Peter was such a lovely chap. I didn't know him super well, but I was going to say it's just such a shame he's not here, but of course we wouldn't be here if... Anyway. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk about... Um, Primarily about insects, which might seem slightly irrelevant to some of you, perhaps, but hopefully it will, it will soon make sense. Um, so I've always been a bit of an insect nut. It's just one of those things. Everyone has their own individual interests. And I was always fascinated by nature, but particularly by, by bugs, by butterflies and beetles and bees and so on. Um, and I've been really lucky that I've managed to make a, a, a living out of studying, chasing around after butterflies, which is a real privilege. Um, and, and so this, this is my old, uh, youngest son, um, Seth. And he's in his bug phase at the moment as well. He's nine, and he's been really into caterpillars and anything he can catch, grasshoppers. And this is Colin, his cockchafer. Um, sadly, Colin <laughs> is no longer with us. Um, <laughs> Seth isn't as good at looking after them as he might be, but, but his heart is in the right place. He's really fascinated by these little creatures, and I hope he doesn't grow out of it. But, um, but the sad truth is that most people do, that many of us have a bug phase when we're little, but most teenagers and most adults, their immediate reaction to anything that buzzes past them is to try and swat it. They're frightened, they think it's going to sting them or bite them or give them a disease or something. Um, and that's really sad and worries me because insects are really important. And I, so my sort of personal mission in life is to try to persuade people to love insects or, or at the very least respect interests in insects because they're, they're really important, as I'm going to explain. Um, but before I talk more about insects, I, I want to say something bigger and rather cliched, I'll admit. But this, of course, is is our beautiful planet, it's where we live, it's everything we have, it's our home and it provides us with food and water and, and clean air and, and inspiration and wonder, it's an amazing thing. Uh, we're not going to go and live anywhere else anytime soon. Um, and the, it contains what well, we've named about one and a half million species so far, of which about a million are types of insect, but we think there's maybe 10 million species living on this planet 
with us. Um, but, of course, we're making a terrible mess of it. Uh, we have this rapidly growing human population, which is creating all sorts of problems for our planet. Um, we're changing the climate. We are in danger of reaching a point where that becomes a runaway process that we can no longer even stop, which is going to have profound consequences for all of life. We're polluting the, the soils, the rivers, the air, the oceans with fertilizers and pesticides and plastics and PCBs and a whole bunch of other chemicals. We're still chopping down the rainforest, even though my whole life people have been campaigning and saying it's a stupid idea, we should stop, but we seem unable to stop ourselves. We're overfishing the seas and so on and so on. All issues that you know full well about, we've all known about for a long time, and yet somehow the human race does not seem able to rein itself in. I'm going to focus tonight on the bottom one, biodiversity loss, because that's, I guess, is my real interest. And when I talk about biodiversity loss, most people tend to think about extinctions and really rare, completely large animals, things like tigers or polar bears um, that they've seen on the television. And, and, and of course, they're, they're, it's right to be concerned about those creatures. But actually, this, this focus on, on things that are on the brink of extinction is perhaps missing a much more important aspect of biodiversity loss, which is the decline in bioabundance, that things used to be much more common than they are today. Um, so the World Wildlife Fund, in conjunction with the, the Zoological Society of London, published a report, I think it was last year, where they calculated how many vertebrates there were on the planet and how that had changed since 1970. Wild vertebrates, so vertebrates are mammals, fish, birds, reptiles, and amphibians. Uh, and they reckon the number of vertebrates on the planet has dropped by 60% since 1970. So more than half of all the wild animals on the planet have gone in less than my lifetime, which is, I find, deeply concerning. But that's focusing on vertebrates. What almost everybody until very recently had overlooked was what's happening with the smaller things, the invertebrates, the insects and spiders and so on. Until 2017, when some data emerged from Germany, which I was loosely involved in, um, at least in analyzing, but I didn't collect any of the data. It was all collected by German entomologists um, who, since the late 1980s, put malaise traps on nature reserves dotted all across Germany. A malaise trap is this funny tent-like structure. And they, they catch flying insects, um, all types of flying insects and they end up falling into a little bottle of alcohol. Um, and this graph shows you how the, the daily catch, the weight, the biomass of insects um, caught per day per trap changed between 1989 and 2014. So it's 26 years. And during that period, the catch dropped by 76%. So three quarters of the insects across Germany seem to have disappeared from, from the landscape, which is which is really alarming, uh, a rate of decline that I don't think anybody had suspected might be <laughs> happening. Sadly, we don't have similar data from the UK or anywhere else in the world because nobody else was doing this. Um, but we do have some other data that suggests that this is not just something peculiar to Germany. Um, so, for example, we have probably the best studied insect group in the whole world in terms of their population change are butterflies in the United Kingdom. We have this amazing detailed data set collected by thousands of volunteers who walk transects counting butterflies 
every fortnight through the spring and summer. And this shows you um, two charts. The top one is what's happening to our commoner butterflies, and the bottom one are the more specialist rare butterflies. Um, but broadly, they both show the same pattern. The top one numbers have fallen by about 40%, and the bottom one, they've, not they've fallen by over 70% since 1976. So it seems that butterflies are in decline. Um, I'll show you one other similar statistic. This is not population size, because we don't have population size for, for bees and hoverflies, but this shows you how the, the average range sizes of bees and hoverflies in the UK have changed over time. Hoverflies at the top and bees, the wild bees, is the lower one. And you can see that they're contracting. Their ranges, on average, are getting smaller. Um, so the, the end result of which is that if you had a time machine and could go back to 1980, and if you searched a kilometre square of Britain at random, on average, in 1980, you'd have found about 11 more species of bee and hoverfly than you would if you went to that place today. And so slowly, one by one, species ranges are shrinking, their numbers are falling, and so on. So, so far as we can tell, insects are broadly in decline. Um, I could show you other evidence, but we haven't got time. Um, and that should really concern us, because insects are enormously important to us. People don't realise it, the large majority of members of the public don't give a damn about insects. They don't realize that they're actually directly relevant to their well-being. But they are. So E.O. Wilson is a famous American biologist, and this is just a quote from him. And to, to sum it up, he basically says, if people were to disappear from the planet tomorrow, then the planet would do just fine without us. Um, but if the insects were to vanish, then the environment would collapse into chaos, was how he put it. And he's absolutely right, and I want to briefly explain why he said that. So. Firstly, insects themselves make up the bulk of all life. As I said at the beginning, about two-thirds of all the species we know of are insects. So if we're losing the insects, then we're losing the bulk of Earth's biodiversity. But the things that aren't insects, a great many of them eat insects. So an enormous number of bird species, plus bats, lots of small mammals, amphibians like frogs, freshwater fish, all depend upon insects as food. And so if we lose the insects, if the German data are correct and three quarters of the weight of insects has disappeared, then that means that three quarters of the food has gone for creatures that eat insects. Insects do a whole bunch of other things too. Um, they are natural enemies of crop pests, which often are themselves insects, admittedly. Things like ladybirds and hoverflies and lacewing larvae and earwigs are all important. Uh, predators of pests. And then there are dung beetles that help to recycle uh, animal dung and return the nutrients so the plants can grow. And there are carrion beetles that do the same for dead bodies. And all sorts of other insects doing interesting things like ants that help to maintain soil structure and disperse seeds and so on and so on. Basically, insects are intimately involved in more or less every ecological process you can think of. So if we lose the insects, there are going to be all sorts of ramifications. The most famous thing that insects do for us, of course, is they pollinate. And um, people often think that bees are pollinators, but actually there are many, many different types of pollinators. There are, there are lots of different types of bee, but there are also there are flies and butterflies and moths and beetles and wasps and so on, all of them busy pollinating. The large majority of plant species on the planet, 87% of all plant species, require pollination by some kind of animal, usually some kind of insect. 
And 75% of our crops um, require pollination by some kind of insect. Uh, so um, we're used to our supermarkets being so full of this amazing selection of fruit and veg, often flown in from all sorts of exotic locations. Um, if we didn't have pollinators, then most of those fruit and veg would be gone, and we simply could not feed the global population without these insects busily pollinating our blueberries and strawberries and courgettes and tomatoes and chili peppers and even things like coffee and chocolate depend upon insect pollinators. Life would be pretty grim without them. So why are they disappearing? It's a complicated subject and there are lots of drivers of insect declines. Um, but I think most scientists agree that broadly they're kind of summed up in, in these three points here. Loss of habitat and intensification of farming and the adoption of pesticides on a large scale, all of which are intimately interlinked. They're really part of the same process. So let me talk first about habitat loss. Um, one of the most insect-rich habitats that we used to have lots of in Britain were our our hay meadows, our flower-rich meadows, um, of which Britain used to have about 7 million acres uh, in 1930. But during the rest of the 20th century, we more or less got rid of all of it. There was a little over 2% left of all the flower-rich meadows that we used to have. And you can see that this habitat is, would be a nice place to live if you were an insect, a bee, a butterfly, or whatever. That photograph was actually taken on uh, South Uist, which is a fantastic place to visit in the summer if you get the chance. Um, and there, this, these meadows still survive, but in most of Britain, they were swept away and replaced by things like this. And it's pretty self-evident, really, if you're, uh, th th that's not a great uh, thing if you're a bumblebee or a butterfly, because there's really precious little life that can be supported by this kind of intensive farmland, um, be it arable crops or... Uh, monocultures of, of, of improved pasture, which uh, you know, comprising often just largely one species of grass, um, are, are similarly almost entirely devoid of biodiversity. So that habitat loss, um, particularly the loss of flower-rich grasslands, has, has had devastating effects on our insect life. But also the, the way farming has changed, it's not just about the, the loss of those flower-rich habitats, it's also a structural change to the landscape, which I think has largely gone unnoticed because it's been so slow that it's quite hard for a, a, a normal human to perceive. But it, this, these photographs, which actually are taken from France, illustrate what's happened all over Western Europe very clearly. So this is, these are the same place taken in aerial photographs, starting in 1958, top left, and finishing in 2010, bottom right. Um, so it's really not that long a period of time, 50 years. Um, and you can see just how dramatically the landscape changed from hundreds of tiny fields at the top to today just a few giant fields. And, and again, it's almost intuitively obvious why that's not going to be great for wildlife. The, the kind of heterogeneity, the higgledy-piggledyness of the landscape in 1958 has been swept away and replaced by the big fields. Okay, so the third thing on my list, an, an integral part of this, the way farming has changed is the widespread adoption of, of lots of pesticides, which were largely introduced after the Second World War. And since then, we've seen wave after wave of new generations of pesticides coming onto the market, often with older ones being uh, banned as it was realized they were harmful. Um, at the moment, in the UK, every year we apply 
16.9 thousand tons of pesticides to the landscape every year. That's just farming use, I should say. It doesn't include um, urban use, garden use, or so on. Um, 16.9 thousand tons. And each field is treated, on average, just over 17 times. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a farmer goes out 17 times. That could be the farmer going out once and spraying 17 pesticides altogether, or him going out 17 times and spraying one pesticide. But that's the average number of pesticide applications to an arable crop in the United Kingdom today. And that figure has doubled in the last 25 years. Um, so again, we perhaps shouldn't be surprised that our wildlife is, is unable to thrive in this landscape. Let me just show you one example of one field. This, sorry, don't try and read all of this. This is just, we've been studying the impacts of pesticide use on bumblebees um, near the University of Sussex, where I'm based. And we asked the local farmers to, uh, to tell us what pesticides they used on each field. And this is just a, a, one example one field, it was an oilseed rape field that was sown in, in August uh, 2012 and harvested the next year, June 2013. And this is a list of the chemicals applied to that one field. There's a couple of fertilizers in there, but there are 20 different pesticides. And this, he's not a bad farmer, he's just following the advice of his agronomist. Five different insecticides went on to that crop. Now, you might think, and many people argue, that modern pesticides are much safer for the environment, for people, than the older pesticides that were banned, things like DDT famously, which has long since been banned in almost every country in the world. Um, but I'm not sure if that's true either, so let me just show you, sorry, this is a bit of a, bit of a uh, horrible, hard on the eyes graph. Um, and it's slightly difficult to explain, so I've, what I did here was I took DEFRA collected data on pesticide use in the UK, and I worked out how many honeybees you could theoretically kill if you fed all the pesticides used by UK farmers to bees. I know it's a stupid calculation because nobody's actually going to do that, but I plotted how, how many bees you could have killed with all the pesticides used in 1990 through to 2015. And you, the, the point I'm trying to make is that it's gone up a lot. It's, this doesn't look to me like a situation that's getting better you could actually kill six times as many bees in 2015 as you could in 1990. Um, uh, so once more, it seems that we, we're heading in the wrong direction to me. We've doubled the number of sprays per field in that same period, and we're applying six times as much kind of toxic load, if you like, for, at least from an insect's perspective, to the landscape. Let me show you one other bit of data on there. I'm nearly, I know this is a bit depressing, all of this stuff. Thankfully, the next talk is going to be much more positive. Um, it was my job to kind of, you know, beat you up a bit first. Um, so this just shows you the global scale of contamination of, of our planet with pesticides. In this case, these are just... It shows you what's happened with neonicotinoid insecticides, which are a notorious group of insecticides, most of which were recently banned in Europe, but are still very widely used elsewhere. What I want you to focus on are the little circles with the sort of orange and white spots. Um, so a Swiss team um, got honey samples from all over the world. Bear in mind that honey is bee food, and they collected these uh, samples of honey 
from, uh, from all sorts of exotic locations, islands in the middle of the Pacific and so on. And they screened them just for neonicotinoid insecticides. And the darker the colour in the little blob, the, the more was present. But the take-home message is that no matter where in the world you are, these chemicals are contaminating the food of honeybees. 75% of the samples they got from all over the world contained a neurotoxin which is designed to kill insects. And bear in mind this is bee food that they've gathered to eat themselves. They don't make it for us to put on our toast. Um, and if honeybees are being exposed, if they've got them in their honey, then it's pretty certain that um, any flower-visiting insect living anywhere in the world runs a pretty high chance of being exposed to chemicals designed to kill insects. Um, and so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised looking at this kind of thing if we find that globally insects are in rapid decline. So to put it all together, it isn't just about pesticides. It's, we, we are exposing bees, butterflies, or in fact you could substitute that central picture, almost any animal or plant you care, um, any member of our wildlife, we're bombarding them with stresses. We're taking away their home, the place they live. In the case of bees, there are not many flowers left for them to feed on. Um, and if they do find flowers, they're likely to be contaminated with not one, but often dozens of different pesticides. Um, and to put all that together, we shouldn't really be surprised if our insects are disappearing. Um, what we need to avoid is this kind of situation. You may well have seen these pictures before. These people are hand-pollinating their apple trees in southwest China because there are no pollinators left in this part of the world, so the, the farmers have to do it themselves. There is one solution which um, has been suggested to the, to, the, to the bee crisis, which is to build robo-bees. And really, there are at least four labs in the world that I know of right now that are trying to build... Um, robots to replace bees, because the bees are dying, so the obvious solution, of course, is to build little robots to replace them. Um, and, and, and I think this really typifies, for me, this attitude that many people have, that technology it will provide the answers for us, when actually there's a really, really simple, obvious, natural solution staring us in the face. So it's a crazy idea. What do you think of the resources it would take? So... There are, if we just consider one species of pollinator, the honeybee, there are about three trillion honeybees in the world. Are we really going to build three trillion little robots? Imagine the plastics, the metal, the energy that's going to require, and they're going to break down, and we're going to end up with them littering the countryside. Horrible little things. And worst case scenario, imagine that Vladimir Putin breaks into the bee bot control system and turns them against us. It, it seems... An idea that's fraught with pitfalls. Um, when we have real bees already that have been around for 120 million years, they're really good at pollinating things. Um, they're carbon neutral and self-replicating and biodegradable. They seem to have a whole bunch of excellent properties that we would look for in a pollinator. Um, and surely looking after the real thing is better than, than planning for their demise. Okay, so my last slide. Um, so what can we do? Well, the good news is there is lots we can do. Um, the, the, there are a lot of these conservation issues, like rainforest being chopped down, it, you do feel completely helpless, but we can all get involved in looking after insects. And I'm a big advocate of encouraging people to look after their insects in their gar gardens, and I think we can all do a lot there. 
But the reality is the majority of the countryside is farmland. About 70% of the UK is farmland. And no matter if we get every gardener to plant bee-friendly flowers, that's probably not going to really turn things around because we need to change the way we farm. And right now, we seem to have gone down an avenue of farming and developed a, an approach to farming which makes land completely hostile to wildlife. Uh, and I, I think probably everyone here would agree with me that that is not sustainable in the long term. Not just because bees are disappearing, because wildlife is disappearing, but because it's degrading the soil, it's contributing a lot to greenhouse gas emissions, it's polluting the rivers and seas and so on. Um, it, it, it seems to me that we need to find a way to grow food and to look after biodiversity at the same time, rather than seeing them as, as, as mutually exclusive, which is somehow where we are right now. But I'm hoping the next talk is going to provide some inspiration as to how exactly we can do that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave. Now, pivoting neatly from crisis to a possible solution, can I introduce Sébastien Treillet, who is the executive director of IDRI, French Policy Research Institute. Uh, in case you're already impressed that Sébastien is delivering tonight's lecture in English, it is just one of his five languages. <laughs> he is chairman of the Scientific and Technical Committee of the French Global Environment Facility. Before joining IDRI, Sébastien led the French Ministry for the Environment's Foresight Programme and coordinated the Agrimonde Foresight Exercise, How to Feed the World in 2050. He is clearly a master of foresight, which gives us even more hope that IDRI's 10 years for agroecology in Europe model is a glimpse of the farming future. Sébastien. I thank you very much for your very kind words, Joe. Uh, I feel honoured to be able to speak just after... Professor Dave Bolson, <laughs> so I'm really honored to be here and to, to be trying to give a, a, a glimpse of hope after what Dave has been uh, telling us. So, Idri, I just want to, to you to know who, you, who, who is talking, because that's important, because the study that we've been uh, elaborating at Idri about an agroecological scenario for the scale of the whole European continent, including Britain, of course, because we, it's important for us. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that, that, and, and, and that's, I'm, I'm really happy that we can discuss that in Britain today because that's, that's important. But that agroecological scenario was to really to say, is it technically feasible uh, to try and redesign our production systems to try and pa particularly address the three issues that Dave has been talking about? First, uh, taking care of the grasslands and the meadows, reintroducing them while they are disappearing. Second, uh, I just need to look at my notes of uh, what Dave has been, uh, has been presenting. Second, to recomplexify the landscapes uh, the, the, and, and therefore uh, getting against the trends that are simplification and specialization of landscapes. And third, radically uh, diminish the number, uh, the, the number of treatments by pesticides and, and try to see uh, what is the type of system redesign that would be leading there, and can we upscale that to the scale of the whole uh, of the whole European continent, for the sake of biodiversity first? And I think our issue at, at IDRI was to try and look at can we build a biodiversity-friendly food system for Europe, 
and then try to see if this is also able to manage climate. So putting carbon second, to some extent trying to address also to, to put the focus on biodiversity as a first priority issue and not necessarily as, as climate being first and then let's see if we can arrange with biodiversity issues. And that's, that's something that I will, I will come to. And you have the papers where we try to address a, a variant of the scenario that addresses also uh, as much as possible the climate and biodiversity issues together. That's what I'm going to talk about. So who am I? Uh, I mean, Joe ex explained who, who I am, but I'm just speaking for an institute that was founded by Laurence Tubiana, who is the ambassador for climate in, at COP21 in Paris. So we are, uh, international, we're, we're focused on international negotiations for the environment. Uh, we're a, a private foundation of public interest, majoritarily funded by, by French public money and, and linked to academic institutions. So we are not a research lab, but what we do is confronted uh, always with, with academic knowledge. So the, 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 the scenario that I'm going to present to you has been discussed by, by a scientific uh, council, by a scientific uh, advisory board, and is now also uh, under review for publication. So that you know that if you're looking for the scientific publication, it's still not there, but still we believe that this is uh, robust, uh, orders of magnitude and robust data that I will be uh, talking about. And just to say that for us, working on international climate negotiations as we did supporting the efforts of the Paris Agreement, it's very important to be grounded in national or European scale discussions on policy reform and food system is one of the key elements that we need to set right if we want to reach the biodiversity and climate targets. So. One thing about the, the, the scenario is called TIFA, 10 years for agroecology, and I'm really thrilled that this has gained echo resonance in the, in the British debate about 10 years for a future for farming that would be both good for health, climate, and nature. Uh, why the 10 years? I'm going to, to, to present to you a scenario that is for 2050, because we believe that we, the, 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 the pace of change necessary is probably not leading to that image that I'm going to present to you in 10 years from now. But the decisions for transitioning the trigger in the transition are to be taken in the, in the next 10 years. And, and this is drastic because we might take just the opposite decision and be completely uh, unable to reach the, the future that I'm talking about. Um, so what we intend to do, I, I'm going to present to you a scenario which is the first step of the, of the, of the approach that we have about the biotechnical modeling. Is it agronomically feasible, uh, technically feasible, to think of a Europe that would go agroecological at the large scale? Is it okay for what concerns the capacity to export if we think it's important that uh, Europe can export some of their cereals for global balances on, 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 on food markets? And is it also, can we close the fertility cycles? And, and so what are the biotechnical uh, orders of magnitude? We are still not, I'm not able today to tell you that it's economically, uh, that we have a pathway that economically would lead there. But I want really to tell you that we are working hard on it and not just trying to put an economic model on this because we believe that what is important is also to understand how the structure of the whole system needs to be changing, both the structure of cost of production and, the, and also the cost and the price for consumers. So we need to, to think of those jointly. This is why this is not currently something that we can put into the, into the debate. Um, and, and I must acknowledge you have that on the papers that we have had uh, uh, support, uh, financial um, uh, support from uh, philanthropies and from, and from uh, uh, French and European uh, public money for research. Just one point again to tell you why we thought it's important to develop that scenario. 
very often in the climate debate, and th this was also very obvious in the, in the, in the, in the spin-off uh, studies from the Eat Lancet report, a lot of the, of the vision of what is a climate smart narrative is, as Joe put it in the introduction, a narrative that is very much about land sparing, uh, where you, 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 you put uh, a lot of emphasis on intensification of the existing farmland uh, and looking for efficiency per unit of product or efficiency in terms of, of climate impact. Um, and the problem is for us to see that this is not working for nature uh, and biodiversity in the places where farmland is, is currently there. Uh, so uh, there are environment blight spots in those types of scenarios, not just on biodiversity, but also on water quality. If we don't have grasslands, I don't see any way. I mean, that, that's what's happening around Paris. The grasslands are disappearing because livestock production is disappearing. And the, water, and, and the crop rotations are simplifying, which reach rapeseed, which reach rapeseed. And this is incompatible with water quality. Uh, so that's the type of thing where when we say biodiversity, there is also these very important issues of water quality that are behind it. You could also think that this is not very, the, the, this scenario is, is also not very good, this climate smart narrative is not very good because of the capital intensity of farms that has other types of uh, depth effect on the farming systems, but that depends on what you think is the nice, is the best way for a farm to be existing in terms of uh, labor capital uh, relationships. But that's just to point out the fact that we also have that type of discussion that is possible. Uh, and on food, because what we eat is then, of course, very, very important. Uh, and, and so the idea is to have a, a scenario that would work for health, uh, climate, and biodiversity. And, and the idea of having a, an agroecological scenario at the scale of Europe is that for the moment, I don't know how it is in Britain, I hope the sound is okay when I move, um, what, what we have in France for the moment is that agroecology is considered acceptable by the majority farmers' union, but it's supposed to be a niche uh, element, something that can, on markets and on, and on the overall surface of land, can only be uh, extended to a, a niche uh, magnitude and not to a mainstream magnitude. And we wanted to say, well, why not? Let's look at what, how it looks like if we would uh, upscale that. So I'm not going to go into too many details, but just to tell you that behind the, what I'm presenting to you, it's just a pure uh, biophysical computation of how much uh, we export and import from Europe, how much we need for human food, what is the plant production systems in terms of yield crops, crops rotation and grasslands that are often not very much computed in, in, the, in the discussions about yield because we forget that grasslands are a key element of the fertility cycle. We also compute the non-food uses, the animal production and how much feed is used from vegetable to animal. An important figure is that in the OECD, 60% of the vegetal production is actually used to feed the animals. That explains why we put so much emphasis on trying to reduce the quantity of, of animal products that we eat. But I want to differentiate that scenario from the Eat Lancet report in a moment. There are nitrogen fertilizers that are, that are um, uh, very important, but also the crop rotation, the capacity to fixate nitrogen from legumes crops that are very important because we focus on that type of uh, close, uh, very short closing cycles of, of the, uh, the fertility cycle. And the manure of the animals is also part of the fertility cycle. So we try to put more emphasis on that cycle than just putting all the emphasis on the uh, artificial inputs. Um, so basically the input variables are what type of cropping systems can we imagine that would be quite different, redesigned from, from very different from the trends of today, livestock systems, diets, western lots, losses and non-food users, and we try to see if that can match us, if the, 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 
the production matches the demand if the land use is, is uh, how we can adjust the land use and see if, what are the impacts on greenhouse gases emissions and biodiversity. So basically on production systems and on, and on diets what we do is that we try to close the fertility management at the territorial level with legume crops uh, and manure uh, from uh, the livestock systems. We make the assumption that we go for a completely pesticide-free farming system to see if that holds. But this also then is linked, of course, to the nitrogen fertilizers because if you are very natural, if you use a lot of uh, nitrogen chemical mineral uh, nitrogen fertilizers, then you need a lot of pesticides. So these things are not independent. And on that, we use the reference in yields that we have on current organic systems, which means that for the moment, we are quite conservative on the yields because you could think of yields through innovation in agroecological systems that would be higher. But at the same time, given the impacts of climate change, we thought it would be a little bit too optimistic to think that we would increase the yields in, of organic systems today. So organic farming is a reference as a way to, 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 to uh, uh, document why our assumptions on future yields, where they, where they come from. We have a redeployment of permanent grassland because we need to have grassland in, in all the parts of the, of the systems. We uh, put the emphasis on livestock systems that are extensive and we put the emphasis on ruminants. And that's where we are completely contradictory or in a, exploring a quite contrasted assumption to what is normally said that we need to ban the ruminants because they emit, they emit methane and put the emphasis on remaining poultry and pork because they don't emit methane. And we believe that for maintaining the grasslands and the extensive systems of grasslands that are very important for our biodiversity, we are going to need, we are going to need ruminants. And then we have to deal with the fact that they emit methane. But th this is a, a specific assumption that I think was very interesting, for, very interesting for many of the researchers with whom we discussed because it was putting more emphasis on grasslands again and on ruminants as some, as some part of the farming systems that we actually need because they also transfer fertility from grasslands to crops if you use their manure. Um, we try to give, uh, use references of what is a healthy and sustainable diet. Uh, again, more red meat than usual uh, compared to others where it's basically white meat that is, that is present in healthy diets. You might discuss that, but we, we use the uh, WHO and other references also produced in Europe to say what, what is the amount of red meat that would be sustainable. We reduce the amount, but not to the extent that, was, uh, that, 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 that is, uh, for instance, in the Eat Lancet report. And we have a priority that we need to use first the vegetable production for food, then complements for feed, then we need to uh, have grasslands for biodiversity because in some other scenarios, people harvest grasslands to, to methanize grass, uh, the grass and produce bioenergy. This is not something we do first. And in the end, if we have something left of the biomass, we can use it for, for non-food users. Uh, this was also for me a, a way to, to be not very too technical for those of you who are not interested in the techniques but in the results, but to give you some understanding of how we think about such a model. So, what are the results? I'm going to present to you the, 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 the gray part is for 2010 and the green part is for 2050. And we have the first TIFA values that are really focusing on if we go for biodiversity only. And the yellow ones is if we want to be better on climate, how can we make a variant that is better for climate and therefore you trying to assess the trade-offs between climate and biodiversity. Um, so what we did, I hope it's, it's readable, we, this is, these are the, the assumptions on diets and you see that we basically 
uh, reduce the amount of, 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 of um, animal products in our diets. This is quite consistent to many, with many of the, of the recommendations or the scenarios that are currently explored. The other thing that we do is that we, uh, the computation to trend and, and, and um, uh, feed, uh, to, to, to be able to have the production uh, responding to the demand uh, assumed with the diets that I've just presented, we are thinking of reducing a lot of the feed uh, of the vegetable production that is used as, at feed uh, and, and have more uh, capacity to uh, use the vegetable production for food. But nevertheless, this scenario is an assumption of, of a reduction in production in vegetable production by 30%, around 30% in all the scenarios. So of course, when we present that to farmers, it's a scenario of degrowth, but we believe that the whole thing is to, to talk not just about biomass quantities, but about the value of what you create. And that, of course, needs to be documented economically. A very important change in the scenario is that we reduce, of course, a lot the animal production. But compared to other scenarios, we, reduce majority, we don't reduce as much the ruminants parts, the cows and sheep. Uh, so we have an, still uh, uh, an important amount of sheep. In order to be able to be more efficient on climate, we reduce much more the, the, the number of cattle uh, in the yellow variant, where we try to be reducing the mesent production. Uh, to see if we can still have enough grassland. Uh, so having the less ruminants, how do we maintain enough grasslands for the biodiversity uh, results that we expect from grasslands? So we, 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 we made the computation to make it uh, uh, okay in terms of fertilization. In our scenarios, the nitrogen cycle is quite tensed. Today in Europe, there is an, a, an enormous excess of nitrogen in our, in, our, in our ecosystems. Here we come to a moment, and that's also to tell you about the limitations or the, 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 the critical points in our scenario. The, 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 the balances in nitrogen are quite tense, so we can't, uh, this is probably something where we need to uh, go and discuss innovations in order to make it less, less, uh, less tensed. Um, in our systems, uh, the, the, the reduction, the drastic reduction in pesticides makes it much safer for farmers and farm workers to work on, on farmings because their health is not uh, damaged by, by pesticide use. Uh, and we conserve natural resources, uh, both on farm and also uh, in a, this, this system is compatible with a, a whole restoration at the scale of the agroecosystems. Um, and we've been, uh, and you find that in the report, we're not just assuming that having grasslands is good for biodiversity, we try also to not completely quantify, but qualify on a, on a series of indicators to what extent this is good for ecosystems. Um, then, how, if this scenario is developed for biodiversity purposes, to have the, the grasslands, the complexification of, uh, of agroecosystems uh, and the ban on pesticides, to what extent is that compatible with climate issues, particularly if we have so many ruminants. So in, our, uh, in terms of emissions of greenhouse gases, in the initial variant, we only reduced by 40%. 40% in 2050, this has nothing to do with, with carbon neutrality. But actually, it's the range of magnitude that all scenarios of the of reduction in greenhouse gases do reach in agriculture. So for the moment, no other scenario is actually much better on that side. And so what we do is to say, if we reduce the number of cattle, and still maintain uh, an important part of the grasslands, um, we reach a, a more drastic reduction, leading to minus 47%. It's still not carbon neutral, but still it gives an order of magnitude that we can find and combine um, the, uh, a certain level of, uh, of biodiversity, a certain level of efficiency on climate with uh, protection of biodiversity. 
Um, and, and, and one of the things that I, I need to be clear also how we obtain that is that, of course, we count a little bit of the fact that we reduce imported deforestation because in our scenario, we stop importing soybeans from, from uh, tropical countries and particularly South America to feed the animals. So the animals are fed in a much more, uh, much more extensive way. So this is also a way that, that contributes also to this uh, greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Um, in, that, in, in, the, in both scenarios, we can count also a certain level of uh, carbon sequestration in soils, particularly because the, the, the grasslands are managed in a way that is quite extensive. Um, and um, the problem that we had also in the first biodiversity-oriented variant of the scenario is that we had no biofuel. And, and a lot of the, of the and, and no biomaterial from biomass because we, all the biomass was used to, to, to feed, to, uh, to, to, to um, feed the animals or feed the humans. And so there was nothing left for a lot of things that, that, uh, that people told us when we, when we presented first the scenarios that this scenario is not compatible with, with what we need on climate because we need to substitute some of the biofuels, there are the fossil fuels with biofuels, and we need also some biomaterials to substitute to, uh, uh, to uh, materials that are, that are grounded on, on the use of fossil fuels today. So the first scenario was saying we have none because we have no, no capacity to do that. In that scenario, we managed to have a 14, uh, only a reduction by 14% by of the current uh, level of bioenergy and biofuel, uh, biomaterials that are produced uh, today. So what, what I'm just saying with that indicator is that uh, in a system where we try to preserve both biodiversity and climate, there is very little room for bioenergy. And this is not the common sense because a lot of the people from the climate community expect a lot from biofuels. Um, and, and we produce biogas majoritarily from manure from the, from, from the livestock sector and some methanization of, uh, uh, I, I'd say, 20% of what was in the first variant grasslands, 20% of them are now grassland harvested to produce uh, uh, methane through methanization. Um, so that's basically uh, what I wanted to tell you. What we try to do is, because in, in France particularly, people are thinking, the cereal producers in France are saying, we, need, uh, we are going to need our cereals to feed the world, or at least to feed Egypt. I don't believe we need our cereals to feed the world, because there are, it's more important that the world feeds itself, or that the, 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 the populations in southern countries and in Africa feed themselves. But it's true that the amount of population of a country like Egypt, sorry, I'm just trying to stop that. The amount of, of uh, population of a country like Egypt compared to its resources does make it impossible for Egypt to feed itself on its own resources. So to some extent, there is a responsibility for Europe to be able, when necessary, to, to, be, to be able to export some of the cereals. And we've managed to say, uh, in, the, in one variant, it's nearly the same capacity of export on cereals that we have, and of course, some wine, because this is a French scenario, but I say, <laughs> just to say that the vegetal production, we, 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 ma we maintain the high-value uh, vegetal products and the high-value um, uh, animal products, and, and of course, British cheeses are also very important. Uh, and, and, and when we, when, and the climate variant, we even need, managed to uh, increase a little bit the exports. So this for us was very important to also answer the, the farmers' union in France to say we are not in a, in a scenario where, where you stop to export. It's not an autarchic scenario. There is, there is an export capacity. So that was basically to try and, and get you through the scenario and at the same time tell you where are the, the critical points, the limitations, and also how to use that scenario to enter a debate where 
upscaling agroecology is generally criticized for not feeding the world and not being good on climate. Yes, there are problems, but not more in that scenario than in others that have also their, their very weak points. The, the, the most important discussion is now how do we get there? And it's about changing diets. It's about changing the livestock production systems that are, of course, crucial, but not getting rid of them in our scenario. It's about also, of course, <coughs> uh, yes, the, the, the farming system and the way they are fed, uh, and re-diversifying re uh, vegetal production. And that's one of the key elements that on which we are discussing with the cooperatives and the agri-food sector, because the whole business model of the food supply chain is a lot driven by massification, standardization, and specialization. So despecialization of, of production basins is one of the key elements that we want to discuss. And when we discuss with the French farming, se farming sector, they are not fond of our scenario that is, uh, to some extent, comparable to an organic scenario. And they, don't, they, they, they really hate organic in France for reasons that are, uh, are very political about the strategy for change, etc. But they are interested in discussing this issue of despecialization because they know that probably their value also, the, the value creation in the farming system is coming, is not coming, is not going to come for European farmers for continuing in the trend of specialization. So there we have an, an entry point to debate. And I think of course, <clears throat> one of the key elements that we have to discuss as Europeans, whatever this, the, is going to happen to this very country, but trade policies around Europe or uh, around the UK are going to play a key role. Not to say that this is a protectionist scenario, but probably given the, the, the fact that some countries have opened up the discussion on how are, what are our trade relations, and not just saying that we need to, uh, to, to get rid of all uh, uh, non-tariff borders, non-tariff barriers to trade, but trying to introduce a little bit of discussion about how can we regulate trade in a way that is compatible or even a leverage uh, point for sustainable development. We believe that this is something that we want to have as a discussion with the European Commission. And I believe that's also something that is going to be very crucial for the UK, if the UK has to develop their own trade, its own trade policies. Thank you very much. That was fantastic, um, and uh, Dave McCarp as well, and we'll take some questions. I'm Helen uh, Browning, for those of you who haven't said hello to you this evening, uh, Chief Executive of the Soil Association, and we're going to take maybe 20 minutes or so of questions now, um, if that uh, works. Um, I'm sure there are loads burning away there, so I'm going to, I'll start with Vicky, uh, hi. Quickly first, so I'm a bit confused by what sustainable intensification actually <laughs> involves. Um, but it, see, I mean, so the German data I showed about insect declines, that was on nature reserves, but nature reserves surrounded by, largely by farmland. So at least in that scenario, the idea of setting aside, uh, setting aside land for nature and having the bulk of the land for production isn't working. The nature is disappearing from the bits that have been set aside. And also, 
if you, supposing one could magically produce a wheat variety tomorrow that had twice the yield, are the wheat farmers of Britain going to say, that's great, I'm going to set half my farm aside for nature? They're not. The wheat price would plummet, would become much more wasteful with the way we use wheat, and we'd carry on farming exactly the same area, I suspect. So I'm not, I, I think it just doesn't really work, and that, that combining looking after biodiversity and producing food in the same place is really the only way forward for me. But I mean, I, mean, I completely concur with what Dave has been saying on, on the, uh, the problem with the land sparing assumption that it would be good because of the rebound effect and because of, of the ecological connection between the, between the, 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 the land sets, that, uh, the land that is under conservation and the rest. The thing that we also try to answer with that scenario is, okay, you, you say it's not enough to feed the world, let's put numbers on those lands, uh, on how many hectares. So that's exactly, I mean, I'm not sure that I really can answer your, uh, all the arguments, but developing that scenario was an answer to saying, of course we are going to reduce yields, but we are going to completely change the system. We're going, to, we're going to use much less vegetable production to feed the animals. We're going to have much more grasslands that are also very important. And if you just think that you are going to have afforestation and intensification on the, on the farm that is existing, that's not, you, you completely forget saltus between silva and agar. So I'm sorry to, be, to get back to really agronomic issues, but a lot of the thinking is, is as if there, you had just a vegetable production and conserved areas, while in between you have those other types of, of, of uh, natural lands that are very important. And the last thing that I want to uh, insist on, and I think Dave also insisted, given the level of yields that we have in Europe, why intensify? I mean, it's, it's completely, I mean, even the agronomist, I'm not an agronomist, I'm a hydro specialist, initially of, of uh, uh, hydrology, but the level of yields that we have, uh, I don't see any point in trying to be even more, even higher on yields, while we might rather think of resilience of the agroecosystems that we've been building to, to climate change impacts, to biodiversity problems, etc. So, so, so I, don't, I don't see the point in intensifying in a moment where we are overproducing and we are not competing with the, with the other countries on, on labor costs. So, so, so I don't see exactly, I, I mean, that's a, I'm, I'm entering a, a tricky discussion with farmers because they would say I need the yields increase because I have, no, I have more labor costs, and, and, but I can have more capital. So I don't have the final answer to that, but the strategy to increase the yields, to increase biomass output, to me is, is nonsense, where what, what we should be looking for is more value rather than more quantity. Sorry, if I could just add, I know it's only first question, we'll get to some other things <laughs> in a second. It's just one question. of the, so, as I understand it, roughly speaking, we currently grow three times as many calories in the world as we need to feed everybody, ballpark. So this idea that we need even more intensification, that because the human population is growing, we need to basically you know, drive towards ever more intensive production is nuts. Of that three times as much food that we grow that, than we actually need, roughly a third of it just gets wasted, and a third of it gets fed to animals very, very crudely. So uh, it's an incredibly inefficient system we have at the moment. And, and so it, I completely agree. You know, the idea that we need to do more intensive farming just seems bizarre. And I guess added to that, I mean, your, your graphs show how pesticides are uh, ending up everywhere around the world. We're seeing the same with antibiotics. They're not, just, they're not staying where you put them. And I guess, again, that may be another argument in favor of you just can't do something bad in one place and expect the impacts to stay in that one place. Is that, is that right? Well, I mean, obviously, climate 
change greenhouse gas emissions are yeah. a classic example where, yeah. where you can't contain them, they go into the atmosphere. But absolutely, I mean, um, that the, the global sort of contamination with pesticides turning up in, in honey is a, is a clear example that what farmers do in their fields affects everything. Uh, over here, um, Dan. I wish I knew, is the honest truth. I mean, I spent my life giving talks and writing books and, try, and with the precise aim of trying to engage more people. But it feels a bit like, you know, I, I give talks to audiences of people who usually agree largely with what I'm saying, but it's the people that didn't come to the talks that we need to somehow talk to, to, to engage with. And it's really difficult because I think, you know, maybe 90% of the population are just not interested in environmental issues and they haven't realised that we humans are part of, a, you know, the environment. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, d I don't know. But, the, the, on a positive note, there does seem to be, so, you know, I mean, I saw a, a, there was a poll recently that suggested environmental issues have risen to, to the third most important issue in people's minds these days, after Brexit and the National Health Service, I think. Um, but that's the highest it's ever been, and we've got Extinction Rebellion and everything else, so... So maybe we're reaching some kind of tipping point where people are finally going to wake up. And in, and in France, how has this played out in France? Is there a real interest there? You know, are, you, are you getting some traction? Yes, but I cannot say it's only because of us, because there has been uh, the example of, the, I mean, the, the French minister Le Foll, uh, so 2012-2017, tried to really push the agricultural sector towards something very different. He had this project to go agroecological. So sometimes he was saying mainstream, and sometimes he was saying not all. <laughs> so there is going to be a, a segment of the market that is going to be moving up market through agroecology, and the bulk will stay on, on global commodity market. So he, was, he had a kind of a dual language, but he really installed at the Ministry for Agriculture the idea that Agroecology could be a new project for, 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 for European agriculture. So this is not the global public, but of course, the global public, I think, is quite well mobilized by saying the presentations like Dave's are very, very good to mobilize people, I believe. And the, and the, the wording that is common in France is to say, you remember how many insects we had on our car glasses and now it's, uh, it's, it's disappeared, etc. I'm not sure if, if this is really right or wrong, but it's, it's, it's striking for people. And so they are mobilized on that, but they understand that farmers are saying it's not easy to change. And I believe having the farmers less contradicting has been a, something that is, we are still not there in France, but to some extent, the pressure put by the minister on saying, yes, we will do it, is important. I'm the former minister. Um, and, and, and to some extent, I think that the debate with the French farming sector by, by uh, the President of the Republic, Emmanuel Macron, is to say, look at the, look at the global competition. Uh, where are our assets? Our assets is in our quality. Uh, food safety, that's what the Chinese, that's why they invest in French dairy corporatives, because they don't have the same food safety on milk in, the, in China. 
food safety and let's bet that our environmental quality is also going to be an important asset. So let's move up market globally at European scale. That's what he, he told to the, uh, to the fair, uh, the agricultural fair, uh, the Salon de l'Agriculture in, in February. That's not still completely permeating the, uh, the agricultural sector, but that's, that's a push towards we need to do to be there all, even for economic purposes. Uh, and the last thing is, of course, that some farmers are saying it's too complicated to get rid of all these pesticides because the complexity that I was trying to present in global averages in each farm can be very important. So the transition, way, the transition pathway for one farmer might be to build up a complex rotation of more than seven years with new markets, etc. So they need to be helped for that. And we have a common agricultural policy, but, but still, uh, it's not organized as a subsidy that would help transition, given all the complexity that that entails. So it's a, it's a complicated answer to a very simple question, but I believe the public is mobilized, they know that they want to change what they eat uh, to, 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 do good, to do good, but they know also that the farmers are struggling to, to produce what they, what, what they could be consuming in a good way. So the, the barriers are still around, around skills and markets, really, and getting food from the farm to people. That's still some of the challenges you face. Yes. Any others? No, I, I mean, the, the, the discussion that we have uh, is really to say um, the, the, the downstream players in the supply chain, the food supply chains, are playing a key role. Uh, they have a lot of power, and it's sometimes not for good. Uh, they could use that power to prescribe more to farmers what would be good, or to at least reallocate some of the value that they capture for farmers to be able to have more room for maneuver. Um, and I believe that some of the agri-food companies and the retailing companies are completely aware that, that they also need to be seeking for that type of value. But I'm taking one example of a French company, it's a transnational company, but it is not to say that they are doing good, it's just the example that I want to use is the tension that they are facing. The CEO of Danone, the dairy industry, Emmanuel Faber, is a, to me, I, I, I hear him as a visionary. He's really saying we need to completely change, and he's fond of our scenario, which is good. You understand also that there are cows in our scenario, so it's good yes. for a dairy industry. Anyway, he's interested, and he says, that's an interesting scenario. I want to do, uh, he, he launched in, in New York to, uh, one month ago, uh, or uh, end of, of, of September at the UN Climate Action Summit, a platform called uh, One Planet Business for Biodiversity. And so uh, one of the key commitments is about re-diversification of their products in order to help re-diversification of the primary productions of the, of the raw materials. And then his chief financial officer comes <coughs> and says, well, the market on milk powder is very tense. You need to uh, massify uh, ma uh, economies of scale, etc. And that's just the contrary of re-diversification. Mm. And that tension is there. now is still there, but I think it's at the heart of the discussions of big companies like that. They want to turn into benefit corporation, probably because if they only have to answer to shareholders, they are never going to be able to address the fact that economies of scale is not enough, and that they need to bear some of the costs of uh, economies of scope or rediversification. So that tension is very. I think we are getting in a very interesting moment. Not that I'm completely <coughs> optimistic, but uh, the barriers are there but they are much more obvious and dealt with than, than uh, 10 years or five years ago, I believe. Thank you. Sue. So.
if you have a if you have a conversation uh, of that I, kind with the with yeah, the businesses, I you can also. You are going to jump no, no. in straight. No, I'm happy to jump in. I'm just saying that you might have direct conversations with, with the food industry that are also very important to convince them. Um, to, to some extent, the reason why I, I, we've tried to work on the European scale is that we believe that uh, the European food industry is now facing limits in, the, in its capacity to be profitable in the global race, and that these people might bet on specific new types of value creation uh, that would be enabling them to be the front runners rather than being in the competition about mass production. So that's a bet that we make, and Danone is present in many countries and many continents. So it's not just a European company. But we believe the way to convince the, 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 the European agri-food sector is to say, your margins for new value creations are going to be on, on redesigning the system and being in, and, and innovating there rather than innovating and trying to uh, buy your fortification or new products. I mean, Danone before that tried to do these little actimel things where they tried to convince you that through their dairy products, you were, you had some kind of a nutritional miracle, and that's and that was probably a success to some extent. But that's not where now they have understood that this is not the the new type of value creation for them. So this is probably the I mean that's where where I see the capacity to discuss about uh, what is your value, what is your value creation, and and particularly for. Uh, in, in a market that is saturated. We, we are going to, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about Europe is that now we, we eat too much, everybody knows that, and so the food industry needs to be inventing a new business model that is relying on sufficiency rather than more. So it's about creating value uh, by, and, and selling less. And that type of contradiction, I think, is very important, and we can enter that there and trying to discuss with them what it is that, what is the value that they create. I'm, I'm, to some extent, just repeating myself because I have no other answer to your question. Then there are other very powerful players that are very difficult to convince. I, I've not spoken about the input industry, and I believe that this is, to me, the, 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 the blind spot. If we want to change the common agricultural policy, we need to convince the German. Not to say that the French are good. Huh? You, we also have Limagrin, that is a very complex player. But BASF and, and Bayer are, are key value, GDP parts and, and employment parts in Germany. And in our scenario, they need to be completely re reinvented. So there again, what is the next business model for those players? That's, to me, a, a much bigger question mark than the, than the downstream industry in the chain. Um, I've been discussing with some cooperatives that are not exactly the, the, the input, they are the input uh, retailers, but not the input uh, creators. And they are thinking that, to some extent, their, their work is to transform from selling products to selling knowledge or selling the way to accompany change of that kind. It's not going to be as much value creation and, and not the same jobs as they have today. But they, so these players in the input industry, close to the farmers, are seeing how to, they're thinking that they need to change. But I have no answer for big players like, uh, like, like Monsanto and Bayer. They could just play as long as possible on making lots of money through that, and when necessary, reinvest in something different. While they are, if they are the biggest one, after having merged, I mean, the business strategies of those players is to me a complete puzzle. We can probably just take one or two more questions. I'm sorry to be uh, so. No, 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 sorry. it's fine. And uh, Mark.
Sorry, I'm not sure what you're saying is that. Um, no. I'm yeah. probably about lower stocking rates you know, and mm. uh, and the different types of grassland that you're going to be developing rather than yeah, fertilized grassland. I mean, I mean, to some extent, we are we are uh, to, to to just in pure numbers, uh, the the the, ext the the extent of grassland that we need to for biodiversity purposes in a very in a quite extensive system doesn't need so many cattle. I'm I, I'm not a good specialist, and you might just question the numbers, but. The people have, who have done the calculations are better specialists for that, but that's the the, the thing of that scenario is to say if we want to have a uh, if we want to have the numbers right, we can have a reduction in the production of uh, of, uh, of ruminants and still uh, have uh, grazing systems that do function and the fertility cycle being closed with the manure that they produce. I mean that's the calculation, and we I, I'm interested to have that challenged by you. Uh, but, but I think that's, that's what's, what's behind it. The most, to me, the most challenging part of that scenario is that if we want that to function, we need to, re to reintroduce livestock systems in regions that are uh, currently uh, completely specialized on, 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 crop, on, on cereals and crops. And that's the, 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 the economic challenge that I see that is, that is very complicated. Carbon markets. But presumably, we sorry. No, go on. The the the, um, the subsidy system at present means a lot of taxpayers' money going to the biggest farmers in essentially area-based payments, and this is, there must be enormous scope for redirecting those subsidies. If we can decide, if we can all agree on what we want farmers to do, and then argue that that those subsidies be redirected to support that, um, whether the current three and a half billion a year is enough to do that adequately, I doubt, but it could go some way. Um, but I think we should, we have to accept one way or another that, that farming is gonna continue to need financial support if we want it to do the things. The know, things that are so about. important for yeah. us to do. Yeah. For, for the moment around Paris, the idea is that the water agency is buying land to put grasslands from farmers. So that's, uh, the, the other way around is uh, that they can just be ex expropriated to preserve water quality. And I think that's also an incentive to say, how could we try and recomplexify the system? But I'm also aware that livestock producing is not very attractive as a, as a I mean, for a farmer, it's a, it's a much more complex way of living than being a cereal producer. That explains also why it's disappearing around Paris. And there might be forms of, uh, social forms of farming enterprises where you're not just as one farmer or one farming family uh, compelled to deal with your cows every morning and every night, but having something where you share the burden with others. And that's a, also a kind of a social dimension to it that is very important and to which there might be some solutions. But I think that's, that's a very critical point in the, in, the in the feasibility of the pathway of our scenario that you're pointing at. I'm going to take one very hopefully short question, no, final question. It'll be short. I think. Um, I'm conscious that there's a sort of association, so I shouldn't be using the G word, but can we just talk about glyphosate versus the flower?
I have some views, but I'm, I'm uh, so what, what we've been <coughs> sorry, what we've been trying to, to develop in that scenario is uh, not it's not giving a direct answer to your question. What I've been seeing in the, in the this, this is a very strong debate in France because a lot of the farmers from the conventional farming of the FNSEA, the Majority Farmers Union, have been interested in, in conservation agriculture, uh, stopping plowing, and for them it's already a lot of a system redesigned perspective, um, but using a lot of, 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 of glyphosate. And, and there are now, there is a very, very, not very useful and not very structured controversy between the organic farmers and, them, and, and the conservation agriculture. The farmers that I found very interesting was those who were trying to say, I want in the end to get rid of glyphosate also, uh, but for that I need to build up a very complex system, uh, and that was the example that I was talking of a seven years crop rotation, and that farmer, she said, I first I'm going to use a lot of glyphosate, but the next year and, and afterwards I'm going to reduce it, and in seven years from now my, my, the complexity of my crop rotation would be such that the weeds are going to be out of, the, of my system, and, I, I, and thus the glyphosate will also be out. So when the French farmers are saying to President Macron, I can't ban glyphosate from, one, from this year to next year, I completely understand. But when they say there is no alternative to glyphosate, they are not saying that the alternative is a very complex choice, but it's an agronomic choice that does exist today. So it's not about innovation that would, would just pop up suddenly. There is, there is an alternative. The only thing is that you need to build up a very complex crop rotation system and the markets that are that go with etc. So I, I see the complexity of it, but it's not. It's, I don't think that we have to choose between soil and glyphosate. I think there is a, there are alternatives where you can have a good soil without glyphosate, but then we need to build up the markets for that to be possible. Do you want to make any final comments on that, Dave? I, mean, I guess it, it just made me think of something more broad, which is I think we need government support for research and development to do exactly that kind of question. You know. If, it can't be beyond the wit of mankind to find a way to, to farm that doesn't involve glyphosate and ploughing. But there doesn't seem to be any investment in that kind of research at the moment, and there should be. It's interesting that one of the uh, programmes we run, Innovative Farmers, one of the field labs in there is looking at destroying cover crops, for instance, using new types of, of machines rather than glyphosate um, and without ploughing. So I think there's a huge amount of interest, and you're right, mm -hmm. I think... You know, we need more of that farmer-led research, actually, which, uh, and, and more focus on engineering at times to help us with some of these things. Anyway, I'm aware that we are uh, overrunning, and I'm getting waves from the back of the room uh, telling us that the drinks are ready. And so I just want to sort of wrap up with a, a few words. And firstly, uh, to thank enormously our, our speakers this evening, Sebastian Dave, you have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Peter would have loved this evening, and he would have been uh, right in here on the ploughing topic in particular. Um, his last report that he wrote uh, for us was around uh, to plough or not to plough, and uh, really exploring the science um, around both of those. So um, I hope he's here with us somewhere um, listening to this debate uh, tonight. I think as we um, have discussed so much this evening, the, you know, the focus on climate change and as we run into towards uh, COP26 uh, in Glasgow next year, you know, that focus is going to intensify. And I think what we've heard this evening very powerfully is that we need to keep those other 
two crises in, uh, in view, the nature crisis and also the dietary health crisis. Um, and the future of farming and land use is absolutely central to all three. Um, I guess the Soil Association's message, and I think it's been really well exemplified tonight, is that if we fail to join the dots uh, between those three issues, we risk making things worse, not better. I think we've also heard that uh, further intensifying farming at the expense of soil health and biodiversity cannot be the answer to climate change. And uh, we also know, and we've heard again, that diet change is unavoidable. So let's make sure as we change diets that we do that in ways that work for climate and for nature, nature too. Um, and I think if there's one standout implication from tonight on diets, as Sebastian has said, um, it's that uh, the focus when we get into the meat debate, we shouldn't be just focusing on red meat uh, as a blanket category, as the demon across the uh, piece. But the case has been made very strongly, I think, to reduce intensive grain-fed meats uh, in all production systems, whether that be US feedlot beef or chicken and pork. I think the IPCC uh, land use report confirmed that, and it's soya for our intensive livestock that is uh, one of the biggest drivers of deforestation. It's yield maximization for cereals to feed our livestock that's stopping us farming with nature and restoring the soil. And it's the intensive livestock farming that is driving the antibiotic resistance crisis too, one, one thing we haven't really talked about much tonight. Yet, you know, this is a moment with some hope around the place. Uh, the RSA Commission, uh, we've put reports uh, outside for you to take away with you this evening uh, on the future of food farming in the countryside. Uh, which has had a huge sign-up from over 100 organisations uh, over the last eight or ten weeks since its launch, has also thrown its weight behind that idea of 10 years to agroecology. And I really do hope that we can, we will see next year, uh, a UK version of the IDRI model, um, because I think that would be so helpful to us to, to develop that confidence that this kind of practical solution can work specifically in the UK. And there's a huge opportunity uh, if practical people, as well as funders and thinkers uh, and doers across all those, uh, that span of climate, nature and health come together to unlock that transition, uh, which I think, you know, we've, We've heard some of the challenges in France, and uh, even though they've put so much effort behind it, we know this is not going to be easy, but the wins are, are huge if we can make it. And it's going to be really important this doesn't stay locked up as a sort of intellectual think game. Um, the Soil Association's mission in life is to do stuff, to actually help deploy some of this stuff on the ground. Whether we're working in farms or in schools or in hospitals, that's the kind of work we do. And, uh, you know, we are being called on more and more um, to help with these uh, challenges, with this transition. And I'm so grateful to all of you in this room who have been supporting us in that. 
um, who are getting involved in this, who are influencing others, who are talking about these things, who are debating them, because we need to constantly be discussing and amplifying and doing uh, along these lines. So a huge thank you to all of you who support our work. Uh, for those of you who don't, if you can, please do. That would be uh, grateful, but we'd be delighted. And also the other NGOs who are working in this space, because this is going to be a really concerted effort if we're going to fulfill the ambitions that were set out by uh, the Commission's report uh, three months ago. We are going to need real collective action, um, but I think we can start to see the form that that will take. Uh, so, um, do uh, spread the word, do introduce us to other people who may be able to help us. We will be very grateful for that too. And do now join us for a drink uh, and a nibble. And when you do so, um, can we really raise a glass to Peter? Uh, because uh, we miss him very much indeed. And uh, we, I know he would love to have been here this evening. And I feel his spirit is in the room. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.